0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, uh, as we transition this morning from uh, the announcements and from the worship time into uh, our worship through hearing God's word, I want to just talk briefly about one or two things uh, before we start in our text this morning. And I figured that this would be appropriate for some of our guests that are here this morning. Uh, as you're trying to explore what it means, to, what is Crosswinds Church and who are we as a church? As, as you've probably heard or have you seen up on the screen or something like that, uh, our ser- this is what we call a preview service. And so this is a service that we are basically giving everyone a sneak peek, a little bit of a taste of what Crosswind's Church is like, and what you can expect here at our church every single Sunday once we launch. So that's what we're having today uh, at ten a.m. As you guys are uh, you're, you're here, so you made it for that one. Good job. We're going to have another preview service, if you like what you've seen, on April 6th, which is not next Sunday, but the following Sunday. We're going to have that preview service at 10 a.m. again. So if you'd like to join us again, we'd love to have you for worship on that day as well. Then we're going to take uh, the following Sunday off uh, down here in Spencer, and we're actually going to go worship up in Spirit Lake one last time with our other campus on Palm Sunday. So we will be in Spirit Lake on Palm Sunday for worship. And then on Easter, April 20th, we will be gathering down here for our official launch, launch, our official first step as a new church campus down here in Spencer. And so we're super excited about that. Well, as you know, today is a very special Sunday and I figured that if it was a special Sunday and we have a, a few guests that are checking out what we are about as a church, it would be appropriate for me to, to share a passage that is really uh, identifies one of the core things about who we are as a church. If you were to tell me that I only got five passages of Scripture that I could preach from for the rest of my life uh, that had to identify and, and say what I believe and what uh, the Christian church as a whole should believe, and, and what our church believes, this would be one of those five passages. I say that because this is a passage about grace. Grace. It's a nice Christian buzzword that we all like to use. You see a number of churches named grace, but I think a lot of times, if we're real honest with ourselves, we don't fully understand what grace is. Grace simply means unmerited favor. In other words, it means that we are given something that we don't deserve, not because of anything that we have done. And oftentimes in the church, when we talk about grace, we're referring to a specific act of grace. And that act of grace is God offering up his son on our behalf so that we might have a relationship with him. Some of you may be saying, well, Jordan, that, that sounds good. Uh, I, I like I like that concept of grace but it's, it's not for me. Jordan, you have no idea what I have done in my past. The things that I have thought, the things that I have said, the things that I have done with these hands. There's got to be some sort of line in the sand where God says, I'll go up to this point, but after that point, you're on your own. And Jordan, I've crossed that line long ago. Some of you may be on the opposite end of the spectrum and say, you know, grace, that's, that's great. I, I think that that's wonderful that grace is available for other people. Listen, I, I might need a little grace in my life, but I would have been just fine if God wouldn't have offered me that grace. Because if you look at the person who's sitting right next to me, I'm doing pretty good. I think that every single person in here, in fact, every single person on the planet, has a tendency to fall into one of these two categories. We either have a tendency to think that we are not good enough for grace, or we have the tendency to think that Grace is not good enough for us. If you're not a Christian this morning and you're finding yourself in one of those camps, well then today, is, this sermon is for you. Martin Luther, one of the most uh, important figures in church history, once put it this way. He said, uh, unless our hearts are focused and refocused constantly on the grace of God in the gospel, then we are, we are prone to fall back into our default ways of thinking. In other words, unless we are constantly reminding ourselves of the grace of God, then we are going to be focusing on the fact that we are not good enough for grace or the fact that we are too good for grace and that grace is not good enough for us. So this morning, this passage isn't just for those of us who are exploring this whole Christianity thing, but it is a constant reminder to each and every one of us, the grace of God. It serves as one of those refocusing passages on God's grace this morning. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the story of two sons and their father. Now, many of you probably know this passage as we get into it, and many of you uh, probably have it memorized, actually. Uh, It's also known as the parable of the prodigal son. And I, I like that term, the parable of the prodigal son, but I want to get away from calling it that this morning, because when we call it the parable of the prodigal son, we actually put all of the emphasis on the younger son. And I would argue that he's not even the main character in this story. Well, who is this main character? Well, that's one of the things that we're going to be exploring as we work through this passage this morning. Jesus shares this story to a mixed group of people, he shares it to the people who are not good enough and those who, are frankly, think that they are too good for grace. And these two categories fall in line with the two brothers that we are going to be looking at, the two sons of this man. And what we're going to see as we're working through this, that our passage is really split into two parts. First, we look at those who think that they are not good enough for grace. And the second part of our time this morning, we're going to look at those who think that grace is not good enough for them. So as we approach God's word, would you join me briefly in prayer? God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is truth, and we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning, and that you would be glorified in us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get into Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, which is where our passage is this morning, what we're actually going to do is we're going to back up, and we're going to talk a little bit about what's been going on in Luke's gospel. This takes place in Luke's gospel uh, about halfway or a little over halfway through the book in chapter 15. And uh, before we get into verse 11, we're actually going to start in verses 1 and 2. So let me go ahead and read these for you. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. See, Jesus is saying this while he's on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus spent about three years of his earthly ministry walking around Israel, telling people and teaching people about the kingdom of God. And then, after about three years, the text tells us that he sets his face upon Jerusalem. In other words, he sets his face towards the cross. He knows exactly what he is doing when he goes to the cross, and he goes anyway. And this passage takes place as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he actually runs into some trouble with these uh, two different groups uh, of, of the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, just want to describe them real briefly. Just think back to a time where you were in school. That can be elementary school, middle school, high school, college, uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, But just think of one of those times where you were in a class with someone who was really, really, really smart, and they really, really, really knew that they were smart. In fact, they were so smart that they were the smartest person in the class, and they made it their mission to make sure that you knew that they were the smartest person in the class. These are the kind of people that, uh, while they're in the classroom, they're actually trying to correct the teacher, correct the professor, and they do a really good job of what they're intending to do, but they also do a really good job of driving everyone crazy. That's a little bit of what the Pharisees and the scribes are like in Jesus' day. These are the people who know everything about the Bible. They have all the right answers to all of the questions that you could possibly ask. they would probably forgotten more about the Bible than all of us know. And not only on the outside were they really smart, but they also lived these holy lives on the outside. They lived impeccable lives. You would never see them without their giant Bible with them. They never got mad when their bracket fell apart because they're an Iowa fan and they were foolish and picked Iowa to go way too far because they're too busy praying to follow follow up and watch basketball. These Pharisees on the outside looked like the model religious people of their day. And to them, they figured that Jesus was actually one of them. You see, Jesus also knew his Bible backwards and forwards. Jesus also was super spiritual and looked up to as a leader. And so they figured that Jesus would want to be their best friend. Jesus would want to hang out with them all the time. But what we see is that Jesus didn't. Jesus hung out with the people that they considered to be the scum of the earth. People that were tax collectors and sinners. And so when they saw Jesus hanging around with with his scum, they just said, you know what, Jesus... You're really getting on our nerves. We can't stand you. And that's where Jesus shares this story in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 has three different parables in it. And the first two parables focus on lost things being found. And really, our parable this morning does as well. But in these first two parables, uh, in, they, they focus on our response when something that is lost is now found. In the first story, Jesus tells us about this man who had a, a sheep that got lost. And when he found it, he started rejoicing and going nuts because he had found his lost sheep. In the second story, Jesus tells us about this woman who lost a couple hundred bucks. And when she found it, she went nuts because she was rejoicing over finding something that was lost. In both of these first two stories, what Jesus is saying is, look, if people are going to go crazy and rejoice over a lost sheep being found, if people are going to go crazy and rejoice over a lost coin being found, then why wouldn't you rejoice over someone who has lost their way being found again? That's what those two first parables are about. And our third parable talks about that a lot too. But our our third parable also tells us that there are really two different ways that you can be lost. There are two different ways that you can be lost. You can be lost by running as far away as possible from God. Rejecting God in both your heart and in your mind and in your body and in your actions. And then on the other hand, you can also be lost by just following God and trusting in your own righteousness rather than trusting upon God himself. And so that's what our text is about this morning. And that's where we're going to start here this morning in Luke chapter 15, verses 11. So go ahead and follow along with me as I read this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. You know, a lot of times when we open God's word, we have to bridge this cultural gap from thousands of years ago into today's context. Uh, But there are some passages that, you know, it makes a pretty easy transition. One of those is, is right here when it talks about inheritance. Inheritance today is roughly the same as inheritance back then. You only receive your inheritance from your parents once they have passed away. And so what this younger son is saying essentially is, Dad, let's be honest, it's been real. I really enjoyed hanging out with you, but let's face it, you're rich. Unfortunately, you're also in really good health. I don't know how long it's going to be before you finally croak. It might be 40 years or so before I can get my hands on that inheritance By then I'm gonna be old like you and I'm not gonna enjoy it, so why don't you just give it to me right now? Just go ahead and give me that inheritance right now so I can at least enjoy it. Of course, just as crazy as that sounds today, would have sounded just as crazy in Jesus' day. What the younger brother, what this younger son is actually saying is he's essentially telling his dad, Listen, you're of better or you're more use to me dead than you are alive. And I take a step back and I think, well, how many of us react and respond to God in the exact same way? Where we want to seek God, but only seek him for the things that he gives us. And then after that, we just toss him to the curb. There's this one man named A.W. Tozer. He was a a famous pastor in in the last century, in the early 20th century. And he said this, he said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. In other words, what he's saying is it is so important for you to have the right understanding of who God is because that shows you what your true spiritual state is like. I think today in the United States, we, we t- tend to think of God a lot like the genie from Aladdin, uh, where we can shove him in his lamp when we don't want him. Uh, But when we do need him, we go ahead and we open up the lamp. He comes out, he gives us what we want, and then after that we put him back in the lamp and we're good. Some people may think of God more like Santa Claus than like the genie. They think of God as someone who is, you know, getting up there in the years, someone who's slightly overweight, uh, but his main focus in life is to give gifts to those who are good. And so as long as I'm good, God's going to give me exactly what I want. Still others of us think of God like a GPS Something that we turn to only as a last resort, and we still don't like it when we turn to it. We turn on that GPS, and we say, all right, God, give me the directions that I need. And as soon as we got their directions, we turn the GPS off. And some of us treat God like this younger son does. We see God as someone that we can uh, use. We can say, God, thank you for all your gifts But now I'm done with you. Thank you very much. You can go on your merry way. See, in the the original context, uh, the original audience that would have heard this, this would have been uh, just remarkable that this son would have said this. They probably would have expected the father to say something along the lines of, no, and maybe even disown him and kick him out of the family because he was being so disrespectful. In fact, this was one of the highest forms of dishonor that this younger son could have given to his father. But the response of the father is quite amazing. Instead of saying no, instead of being angry at his, father, at his son like he could have, he says, okay. He gives his son what he wants, even though it causes him a great deal of pain. He gives his son what he wants, even though he probably knows what's coming up next. He gives his son what he wants because he loves him. Let's continue reading here. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Now, most of the inheritance that this younger son would have received probably would have been property and livestock. And so in another surprising turn of events, he decides to liquidate all of those assets, and he decides to head as far away from dad as he possibly can get. And in addition, what he's basically doing is he's taking the knife, he's already stabbed in his dad's back, and he's twisting it a little bit because he wants to get as far away from his father's influence as possible. But then we get to the end of verse 14. And in verse 14, we see bad state that this son now finds himself in we we close this section with a with a talk about him being in need after he has spent all of his money i just imagine the original audience full of these pharisees and the smile starts to creep onto their face because they finally i think they think they're understanding what this sermon is or this parable is about it's a parable about the justice of god when we don't follow the rules after all, this young man, he, he committed strike one. He disobeyed his father and dishonored him. Strike two, he moved far away. Strike three, he squandered and wasted all of his money. And so some of the Pharisees are standing right there saying, all right, this is about the justice of God. This man has gotten his justice. Everything is good. God won. Younger son, zero. Game over. End of story. Good job, Jesus. Thanks for backing us up. But I want to share with you this morning that if you find yourself in a state similar to the younger son, one where you're running as far away as possible from God the Father, where you're wasting all of the good gifts that he has given you, when you you finally have hit rock bottom, and you think that everything that you are experiencing now is just righteous judgment from God, Because of all the ways that you have screwed up in your past, I want to assure you that this story does not end in verse 14. This story does not end in verse 16. There is hope and there is grace. Let's continue reading to find that. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who went into his field, or sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Up to this point, we think that, you know, things have gotten pretty bad for this young man, but after this, uh, things really have hit rock bottom. He really has nowhere to turn. If he would have turned to his family, they would have completely rejected him. If he would have turned to his people, the Jews, the moment they found out what he had done to his family, they would have kicked him to the curb. So he turns the only place where he knows where he can get help, and that is the help-wanted ads in the paper that he's sleeping under. And that paper and that help-wanted ad is for a farmhand on a pig farm. When we think of pig farms, there's really two things that probably come to mind to us as Iowans. First thing that we think of is bacon, because who doesn't think of bacon when you think of pigs? The second thing we probably think of is bacon, meaning the, the money that comes in To our economy because of that business. But for the people of Jesus's day, they would have thought something completely different, because pigs were detestable. They were unclean, and so anyone who willingly became a farmhand on a pig farm would be kicked out of the Jewish community. And so this truly is rock bottom for this younger son, And again, those Pharisees who are smiling after verse 14, they're starting to hoop and holler because, yeah, there's justice being served right now to this younger son. It serves him right because of every single thing that he had done. But the story's not over. Let's continue reading. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. After some time, and we don't know how long it is exactly, something finally clicks for this younger son, and he realizes that his best chance of survival is to go back to his father. Sure, it's a risky shot, going back to a place where he completely disowned his father, and his father might disown him. But he also knows that his father is a good man. This is his only chance to survive. And here we see a slight bit of change of heart in this younger son. We don't see a full, complete understanding of who his father is. I say that he has a slight change of heart because at least now he's willing to go back. He's not running in the wrong direction anymore. He's turned around. He's willing to come back to his father. But I say he doesn't understand the way his father works because we look exactly at, or we look at how he is planning to restore himself into relationship with his father. He says, step one, I'm going to turn around and go home. Step two, I'm going to admit that I was wrong. Step three, I'm going to ask my father for forgiveness. And step four, I'm going to prove to him how sorry I am for everything that I have done. I'm going to prove to him how sorry I am for everything that I have done. But how do things turn out? Well, let's continue reading in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Undoubtedly, this younger son on the long journey home was rehearsing how he was going to make his relationship with his father right again by proving how sorry he was, by starting on the very bottom and working his way up through a probationary period until maybe someday he could become a son again. But the moment he gets home, things don't work out exactly how he had planned. Because his father sees him and runs after him and embraces him. And that phrase right there, that that description of the father tells us so much about who the father is. First, the fact that he was watching for his son. You've got to believe that he wasn't just watching on this one day, and it was a freak coincidence. His son had left long ago, but he never lost hope that his father might someday, or that his son might someday return to him. He had never given up hope because of the love that he had for his son. And two number two is we see just how crazy about his son he is. He throws. All forms of dignity and cultural expectations to the wind and chases after his son. And when he gets there, he gives him a giant bear hug and greets him as a son. You know, I think a lot of times we think of our relationship with God in the same way that we think uh, that the son thought of his relationship with his father. We screwed it up in the past. And the only way that God's going to let us back in, the only way we're going to have a relationship with Him, is if we prove it. So if we prove how sorry we are, if we come with a giant list of references, with a resume full of good deeds, and say, "God listen, I know I've screwed up in the past, but go ahead, check these res- references, please let me in. Give me a shot. But just like the father does with his younger son, he stops him right before he can say, let me work as a hired servant. And God does the same thing with us. God doesn't accept us on a probationary period. God accepts us as his sons and his daughters. There's no payment plan. that can restore our relationship with God. It's only through his love through his grace. And that's really what our first point is this morning. As we're looking through this passage, our first point is this, that no one is too far gone for God's grace. You may think that you have sinned a lot. And let me fill you in on a little secret you have. But to say that you have sinned more than God's grace is impossible. You may think that you are not worthy to be god's son or daughter and let me fill you in on a little secret you're not none of us are but god has chosen to make you his sons and daughters because of his love and because of his grace no one is too far gone for god's grace i think a lot of times we want to stop the parable right there i mean who who would blame us for stopping the parable right there it's a great great ending I mean, we got, we got a happy ending where everyone uh, is celebrating. The, the son is back and everything, but Jesus doesn't stop there. And so, of course, we can't stop there, and we have to look at the rest of this parable. And what we see in the second half is that now, instead of focusing on the father's relationship with his younger son, uh, he focuses on the father's relationship with his older son. Let's go ahead and read about this relationship between the father and his older son. Now, his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. When the older son finds out what's going on, he goes from confusion into anger. You know, I want to take a step back from this parable real quick and just talk about uh An example of this. Um, How many of you have seen the movie uh, Les Miserables or have uh, seen the musical or read the book for those of you who are super smart in here? Um, I'm a movie buff and I love watching movies and trying to identify the worldview that is trying to be pushed in these movies. And I love Les Miserables. In fact, last year, at a, almost exactly this time, Crystal and I made the nine-hour drive from Chicago to Spencer-slash-Spirit Lake. And uh, on our way here to interview for this job, uh, I was listening basically the entire time to the Les Miserables soundtrack, singing loudly off pitch. And if you have ever needed a reason, why, which you shouldn't, but if you've ever needed a reason why my wife is amazing... It's the fact that she only rolled her eyes like three or four times that entire nine-hour trip. And so, just a, yeah, just a wonderful testament of her grace right there. But I love Les Miserables because I think Les Miserables is basically a uh, retelling of the story of these two sons. Now, let me explain. Les Miserables is about this uh, man named Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean, when he's young, he steals a loaf of bread and he gets, uh, he's trying to feed his family. and gets sent to prison for several years for, because he's caught. And while he's in prison, he becomes this hard, bitter man. He's finally released from prison, and while he's released from prison, this one uh, one priest takes him in, decides to house him for a night, and feed him, and and clothe him, and, and give him a warm place to sleep. But because Jean Valjean is just a bitter man at this point, in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he steals the silver that belongs to this priest and runs away. And as he's running, he gets caught by the authorities and they drag him back to the priest because they suspect that he stole this silver from the priest, which he had. But in an astonishing act of grace, the priest tells him, or tells the authorities, no, that, that silver was a gift to him. And from this moment, from this act of grace, Jean Valjean is forever changed. He wrestles and struggles with what it means to receive grace and forgiveness. And eventually he comes around and realizes this is the way to live, to live in gratitude to the grace that he had received. And so he dedicates the rest of his life to being gracious to those who are around him. At the same time, we're introduced to, to Jean Valjean. We're also introduced to this guy named Javert. Now, Javert is basically uh, Valjean's prison uh, parole officer. And so uh, he's, he's this guy who follows the letter of the law to a T. Anytime there's a rule that's either slightly bent or broken, he he believes that there needs to be justice uh, served and paid for this law being broken. And so when he finds out that Valjean has become this good guy, he doesn't believe it. In fact, he believes that Jean Valjean must continue to pay for the acts of of unrighteousness that he he has done in his past. So he commits the rest of his life to hunting Valjean down. To make sure that he, is paid, that he pays and that justice is served. Throughout the story, their paths cross several times. And uh, each time after their paths cross, Valjean narrowly escapes and Javert is left wrestling through what this man's grace uh, means. How this man can truly be transformed by this experience of grace and forgiveness. And in the climax of the story, and I'm totally going to ruin it for you guys, but, but the book was written in the 1860s, so you've had enough time to read it. Um, so I'm going to ruin it. I'm not going to feel bad about it, but uh, in the climax of the story, Jean Valjean has a chance to kill Javert. It would end all of the, fa- all of the times that he's being hunted by Javert and make his life a lot better. And so he has a gun and he has the opportunity to kill Javert. And instead of killing him, he lets him go free. And that act of grace that Javert receives ruins him. He doesn't know how to respond to this grace. He doesn't know how to respond to grace and forgiveness. And that's really why I think that there's so many similarities between Les Miserables and between this story that we're looking at this morning. The younger son, just like Jean Valjean, had screwed uh, screwed up a lot in his past. There's no denying that he had a bad track record But when he was giving grace, he responded in gratitude, just like the younger son. And the older son, just like Javert, followed the letter of the law to the T. But when grace was offered to someone else, he refused to accept it. And in the older son's case, he refuses to go in and join his brother in this celebration in this party. Let's see how the father responds to his brother or to this younger son, or older son. His father came out and entreated him. So the father comes out to, to meet with him and say, listen, you got to come in. We want you in here. We want you to be a part of this celebration, of this rejoicing that your, your brother is now found, even though he was once lost. Right now, we see a little bit uh, of the father's love, not only for his younger son, but also for his older son. He could have just sent out a servant and said, get back in here right now. This is an act of dishonor from the older son, just as much as the other son was. But he goes out and talks to him graciously, and let's see how the, uh, the older son responds to him. But he answered his father, look, there are these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And in his little response to his father, we get a glimpse of the heart of this older son. And what we begin to see is that this older son is just as lost as his younger brother was. He was using his father and had a broken relationship with his father just as much as that younger son did. See, the younger son, at least he was honest about it. He was upright or forthright about it and said, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you, so just give me your money and I'm going to leave. But his older son was much more deceptive in the way that he had rejected a relationship with his father. He was following all of the right rules. He was doing everything his father said to him, not because he loved his father, but because that was what he was supposed to do. And at the end of all of this hard work and all of the things that he was doing, he was eventually going to get that inheritance. And so what we see this morning in our passage in the second half is is really this, that in addition to uh, no one being too far gone for God's grace, so also no one is without need of God's grace. No one is without need of God's grace. The love that the Father offers to his Son to both of his sons, is is big enough to encompass both of his wayward sons. You know, I said no one is without need of God's grace, and uh, some of you this morning may be thinking that, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm good enough on my own, thank you very much. I, I can tell you that I once thought that too, but then I encountered the grace of the Bible, the grace that is offered in Christ Jesus. And I realized just how much I needed to stop trusting in my own righteousness and the the fact that I was doing good enough and trust instead in Christ to restore me into relationship with God. That's really what this passage is about this morning. This passage is about the fact that all paths to God fail apart from his grace. All paths to God f- fail apart from his grace. Some of us are seeking after other gods, things that aren't even the real God. We can be seeking after uh, pleasure in our workplace, in our family, uh, in the world. And in seeking after these things, we're rejecting the true God. Some of us may be trying to uh, be so much like God that we don't need him for our salvation. All paths to God fail apart from his grace. I remember the first time that I realized this, it was like the lights finally clicked on. A few years ago, uh, Crystal and I finally upgraded to an HDTV. And it wasn't until I had an HDTV that I realized the big difference between a box set and HDTV. Some of you here may remember the transition from black and white televisions to color televisions and the, the large change it was uh, in that regard. That's really the same thing in our lives with grace. We can understand it partially, just like a world that is black and white. But once we've experienced color, we see the world in full color. Once we've experienced grace, it's like we've made that transition from the box set to an HTTV. Life is never the same. We can't really understand it until we experience it. You know, this morning, the response is is pretty simple for us. For some of you, the response is to stop running and come home. For some of us, it is to stop trusting in our own righteousness and come home. For some of us, it is to rejoice when the lost are found. But for all of us, it's a reminder of the grace that God offers us through his son, Jesus Christ. I mentioned as we started that this is often called the parable of the prodigal son, and I didn't want to use that term. The reason I don't want to use that term is because uh, it refers and focuses all the attention on the younger son. I don't think he's the main character of this story. To understand who the main character of this story is, we have to understand what prodigal means. A prodigal, if you look it up in the dictionary, one definition gives it as wastefully extravagant. And that certainly describes the younger brother. He was wastefully extravagant in his spending. But I don't think he's the prodigal one in this story. He's not the one who's wastefully extravagant. The father is see, the father is wastefully extravagant in the love that he pours out on his sons that, have noth- that want nothing to do with him. And it points to a prodigal God. A God who is wastefully extravagant in the grace that he gives us, is wastefully extravagant in the love that he gives us, in the opportunity to have a relationship with him, to be his sons and daughters. This is ultimately a story about God's love and grace that is given to us. Friends, no one is too far gone for God's grace. No one is without need of God's grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace that you offer us. And this morning, there's some here who are rejecting that grace. God, I pray that you would be at work in their hearts that they would come to know that grace. God, I I pray for forgiveness for those of us here who are trusting in our own righteousness rather than trusting in you. I pray that we would all trust in you and that as this passage serves as a reminder of the grace that you offer us, a reminder of the gospel, I pray that our hearts would be set and focused on Christ Jesus. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.